Good morning. morning. Let's open with prayer. Our gracious Father, we again humble ourselves before you. We invite your your presence into our our midst here this this morning. And your spirit enlighten our hearts. Lead us in the way everlasting. Make us effective in sharing this end-time message with the world. Bless our study together. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson four in the quarterly Genesis, and the title is The Flood. And the first paragraph said, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The verb saw uh, bring the reader back to each step of God's initial creation. But what God sees now, instead of good, is evil. It is as if God regretted that he had created the world now full of evil. When you hear the word saw, God saw, do you understand that 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 is not a uh, verb intended to inform God of something he doesn't already know? Wow, I I didn't realize that was going on. I just saw that. No, that's not what's going on. It's to inform human beings that God is paying attention. This is something that God is prioritizing, going to deal with, going to address. It's not that he suddenly became informed of. That's what it, that's what it means. God is, is focusing upon this. What about the idea that God regretted, as, as suggested by the uh, lesson? Well, he knew before he created him going to do that. He knew before he created. So when you hear the word regret, does uh, what, what does the word regret mean? How, do, how does it come across to you? Pardon? You're sorry. Disappointed. Disappointed. Did something I shouldn't have. Did something I shouldn't have. Regret to me, all those things are part of the actual definition. You look it up. Uh, and, but regret to me kind of connotes a little bit of personal responsibility in, 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 in least connected in some causal way. I regret that, that it, that's, that's the kind of the word. I don't like the word regret for this context. I like the word grieve better. Grieve is a better word here. And in fact, that's how the NIV renders Genesis 6-6. Uh, in Genesis 6-6, uh, in the NIV it reads, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That sounds more compassionate. And that's how I tend to uh, prefer. And what was the Lord grieved about when he was grieved? Was he grieved because he was taken unaware? He had high hopes. It's like a parent has a baby. High hopes, and the child turns out to maybe go, and it grieves. Boy, I sure wished it turned out. I I didn't realize. Was was God like, I had high hopes for Adam and Eve, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the human race, but, but it grieves me. Is that what, or, or as you said, he, he foreknew. He foreknew. So what's he grieving here? The conditional loss of. Okay, okay. So as a loving parent, as you see a child doing things that's injuring your child, does it grieve your heart to see them suffering? So he's grieving over the, the corruption, the pain, what sin is doing to his children, the hardening of the heart, the malice, the evil continually. Uh, this is, this is suffering that they're going through. What about to nature and the animal life? Do you remember when Jonah went to preach to Nineveh at the end of the book of Jonah? There's a little comment there. Should I, uh, when Jonah was griping about saving and saving all the people, he talks about all the people he, and the ages of them and the children, and he says, and uh, like, was it like 120,000 animals? <laughs> also much cattle. Oh, oh, also much cattle. That's what it was. Also much cattle. It's like he was concerned for, for the, you think God has concern 
for the animals. And what, what do we think was happening to the animals? Well, we have some evidence of it. We're pretty sure they were tinkering with the uh, genetics and creating the dinosaurs. I think that's exactly what happened. I think the dinosaurs were from genetic manipulation going on prior to the flood, mutating God's creation, creating animals that God did not create, and they were not included in the ark. I think that's exactly right. I think that was causing... And I think, personally, that they were creating them for the purpose of their blood sport. I think they were into violence and blood sport and aggression, and they were mutating animals uh, to create more ferocious animals to compete in their games. Uh, Or maybe it wasn't games. Maybe it was real-life conquest. I don't know there, but I think this was part of part of what was happening. So I think he grieved there, and he, and he grieved, I think, the action that he knew he was going to have to take if he was going to save the species. Absolutely. I think it grieved. If, if a parent, have you ever grieved what you were going to have to do to protect your child? And so I think this is what we're, we're dealing with here. Last two paragraphs in the lesson says, and yet God's God's regret contains elements of salvation as well. The Hebrew word for sorry is echoed in the name of Noah, which means comfort. Thus, God's response to the wickedness, to this wickedness has two sides. It contains the threat of justice leading to destruction for some, and yet his response promises comfort, mercy, leading to salvation as well for others. This double voice already was heard with Cain, Abel, Seth, and it was repeated through uh, the um, it was repeated through the contrast between the two lines of Seth, the sons of God, and Cain, the sons of men. What do you make of this idea of God speaking with a double voice? Is is God two faced? Is God schizophrenic? When Jesus returns in glory, does he smile at the righteous and scowl at the wicked? This is a common idea. When Jesus does come again, is the difference found in the heart of God, the character, mind, attitude of God towards the people, or is the difference found in the hearts, minds, attitudes, and characters of the people? Just like in cleansing the temple. Just like in cleansing the temple. That's exactly right. The wicked ran away. The, the enfeebled and the children stayed behind. That God loves the sinner but hates the sin. So understand the complete corruption in Christianity that almost the entire Christian community has taught the idea that the problem with sin is God's wrath God split personality. Yes, he loves you, but he also gets so outraged and angry that somebody has to stand between him and you and plead a blood payment of a, of a human sacrifice to propitiate and assuage the wrath, lest he not have self-control and he uses power to torture and kill. Or, well, he really doesn't want to do it. He's just required by law and justice to torture and kill you. Because justice requires, but he cries why he does it, but he still uses his power to torture and kill you. Unless he gets a blood payment so he can legally let you out with a declaration that you really aren't sinful. Uh, he, the innocent person that, that didn't do any wrong, uh, will be declared guilty in your place and he'll kill him instead and he'll pretend that you are actually righteous when you're not. 
Do you understand both of these things? It's a complete corruption. It derails human reason. It's not logical. It, requ- it requires, if you're going to believe this, to not reason and not think. And so this is where you come up with the whole very piously sounding. We have faith. We don't ask questions. And if you have faith, you don't ask questions. You believe. When you don't have truth on your side, you need to advance methodologies that keep people from looking at truth. Like believe without evidence. Believe on declarations and claims. Are there any other ideas that's commonly taught in Christianity that present God as two-faced or with a divided heart or with a split personality? Can you think of any? Jacob, I loved you, so I hated Jacob, I, I loved Esau, I hated. Well, uh, that's an actual quote from Scripture, so I would suggest that that uh, interpretation, how people interpret that, could be supportive of that. But, but the statement itself would not. But how people interpret it, often it's used to support the idea. I agree with you, it absolutely is. He's a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. Okay, there we go. Justice and mercy. Or how about, he's not only loving, he's also just. Or... God is forgiving, but he will inflict punishment. I like this one. Um, Jesus died to pay for our sins, but God forgives us our sins. Somebody owed you $10,000 and you couldn't pay it back, but you have a rich brother who pays the $10,000 debt off. It's paid. Does the person who receives the $10,000 payment get to look at you and go, now that I've been paid, I'm going to go ahead and forgive your debt? <laughs> Does that actually work? Well, that's also what's taught in the, in the penal model. Jesus died to protect us from the wrath of God. Or Jesus, is, who is God, mediates his blood to the Father God to propitiate the wrath of God, who he is. About God is the source of life and death. Yeah, God, and, that, and this is very Eastern. This is Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy, which is devil's philosophy, is the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, the evil and the good, and, and, and there's balance in the universe. And in order to have a balanced universe, it requires the existence of both evil and good, life and death, in a constant cycle of reincarnation, good and evil, existing together for all eternity. That's Eastern methodology, that's Eastern philosophies. That's taught in Christianity now, when you teach a God who is the source of life, but also who is the source of inflicted death. Death comes from God, life comes from God, thus God and life, life and death exist forever. In God. What's the core problem to all this is the confusion about or the assumption that God's law works like human law. This is the core problem. Uh, how do you determine whether something's just? What another word for just is? Right. How do you determine something right or wrong? What's the standard that one uses? It's the law, isn't it? And then that goes right to the question. If you have the human law model, then you go down the entire penal legal substitutionary trail. And the purpose of the cross, actually, was to demonstrate that, that God is just or right. It says in Romans chapter 3, God demonstrated his justice or righteousness in showing his son publicly dying. 
And what do we see God did? Because he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, because he didn't punish the sins beforehand. Well, what did God do to Jesus at the cross? Let him know. Did God use power to torment and kill him? And this is what God is trying to reveal. It's the exact opposite of what is taught in almost all of Christianity. And Lucifer's rebellion in heaven began over this idea. Remember, God is the creator. He builds reality, space, time, energy, matter. His laws are the laws life operate upon. The physical laws of health, the moral laws, it's all exactly how God designed it to operate or his laws. But Satan alleges that God just makes up rules and he's a rule enforcer. And thus you remember this quotation, the Great Controversy, page 582. The last great conflict between truth and error and that's what we are facing. We're, we're entering into the final movements of the last conflict, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering the battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. Laws of men made up rules. Precepts of Jehovah, protocols upon which reality operate. He's the creator. Sunday's lesson focuses on Noah's obedience, and in the middle of the second paragraph, the lesson states, Noah's response suggests Noah's absolute obedience to what God had told him to do. What kind of obedience does God want from his faithful people? The obedience of a well-trained dog? We, go, we need to go to obedience school? He wants friends, not servants. John fifteen fifteen, Jesus calls... For friendship, not servanthood, calls us to be friends. Is there a difference between the service of a loving friend, a loving friend who serves, versus the service, versus friendly service? A serving friend versus friendly service. Are they the same? Does God want us to do things simply because God said it? God said it, I believe it, that settles it, do it. Is that what God wants? Should we obey God because he is powerful? Well, God's powerful. Should we obey God so we will, be, uh, we will receive rich rewards or under the fear of just punishments? Are these good reasons to obey? How about agreement with God? We obey because we agree, we respect, we admire, we love, we trust. Romans 6.16 actually reads, uh, Romans 6.16 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. The Greek word obey in this context is the word hupaokue. Hypo, from where we get hypo, as in hypoglycemia and hypotension, means low or under. Acue, we get acoustical. It means hearing. This word means a humble willingness to listen. A willingness to be instructed. A willingness to have your ideas and misunderstandings corrected. And then when you listen... You're at this humble, humble willingness means you humble below the one who's instructing, meaning you admire and respect the instructor so that you take seriously what you're being taught and you have an 
humble desire to learn and apply. That's what actually obedience is. Did you know that's what obedience is? So a humble willingness to listen, to learn, to be led out of the lies, the misunderstanding, the old habits, the preconceived ideas, the false beliefs into a better and more accurate understanding of reality, not just comprehension, but in practice, that we practice a better reality because we're following and listening to our instructor, our teacher who leads us in the path of righteousness for his namesake. So we're following him. It's, it's ultimately not about how well we perform. It's about how well we trust the one who is instructing us and our desire to follow through, our longing, our willingness to be led. That's what Bible obedience is. In that choice to listen, think, comprehend, agree, and apply what we are, what we are um, being taught by Jesus, our hearts become bonded to him. We come united with him, and we are empowered by him to carry out his will. All God's biddings are enablings. Some of you know that one. Enablings. He doesn't lead us to do something. He doesn't enable us to do. He provides the strength and the power to follow through. In this process of humble willingness to listen and follow where we're and apply what we're being taught, we are changed. Our hearts are cut away from the worldly things and values and attachments and perspectives and, 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 and systems. And we are established in righteousness. This is growing up in Christ or receiving the mind of Christ or being sanctified. So an obedient person is the one who eagerly listens to the voice of God and has a desire to hear, to understand, to fulfill, to follow, to apply. They choose to say yes. doesn't mean they have the power in themselves to achieve. That's not what it means. And it's ultimately not about how well you perform. You may have to do something several times. When a piano instructor tells you how to do these exercises or how to, you may have to practice a long time before you can play without hitting a bad note. And the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5.14. Now consider these historic quotes that I'm going to share with you about obedience. What truths, concepts, principles of reality and realities are about obedience are, are you pulling out from these quotes? And, and, what, and is there a difference between the obedience, the obedience that comes from penal, legal, imposed law models, the obedience of law, versus the obedience that comes from love, trust, which is faith. Is there a difference between the obedience of those two? So this is the uh, first quotations out of uh, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. What does it mean to submit to someone? Does submission mean disobeying? If you submit to someone's authority, what does submission actually mean? Give in to, follow, do what they say. Obedience. If a person submits to God, they will do what they understand God tells them to do. But what would be the reason for someone submitting 
not willingly, not joyfully, but as this author said, sullenly. Sullen, a sullen submission. What is it? What does sullen mean? Begrudging. Begrudging submission. They don't want to do it. So what would be the reason for someone to submit to do something they really don't want to do? Avoid punishment. Avoid punishment. Somebody's powerful. Somebody could punish me. I could get in legal trouble. And therefore, I don't want to be in trouble. I'm going to do it so I don't get spanked. Kiss your brother. Tell him you're sorry. Or mommy's going to spank you. Those are always the most lovable kisses, aren't they? Loving kisses. Okay. A sullen submission. So, so notice here, we got obedience going on. But it's the obedience of law. It's the obedience of threat. It's obedience of rule keeping. And this author says that a sullen submission to the will, to the will of the father, will develop the character of a rebel. Now, what is that describing? Reality. Design law. The law of liberty. When you violate liberty, when you coerce or compel somebody to do something that they are not persuaded is right for them to do, it breeds rebellion and hardens the heart and destroys love. Do we have evidence from Scripture that this actually occurs? When you use might and power to get behavioral compliance you actually get more rebellion, not more trust and friendship. Well, we're talking about the flood today. Was the flood a great display of might and power? It, it might have been perhaps the greatest display in human history after creation itself of might and power. And shortly after the flood, we will talk about this next week's lesson in full, but, but shortly after the flood, they, they were building something. Were they building an altar to honor the Lord? They were building a tower. Were they building the tower because the group collectively no longer believed in God? Or they didn't trust him? So did the might and power of the flood lead to friendship and trust? Well, what about after the flood? The ten plagues of Egypt, sometime later, another great display of might and power. What were they doing 40 days later? Worshipping a golden calf. Okay, what about the conquest of the land of Canaan? Uh, walls of Jericho and other miracles that God performed for them. Mites and power. Or did it lead to love and trust, or were they constantly going after the Baals? And speaking of Baal, what about Mount Carmel? When the fire fell at Mount Carmel, and all the people said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Do we have a history of their faithful, trusting friendship with God thereafter? And thus, Zechariah says, notice what we just did. We went through history to give evidence of the principle being acted out and lived out. This is a higher order thinking than following a, a, a Bible statement that just states it or declares it. Declaration-based beliefs are usually pretty weak beliefs. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's a weak belief. Understanding how reality works and seeing it works this way for a reason, understanding the laws behind it, law of liberty, you can't get love and trust by coercive force and pressure. And that's why none of the examples I gave you was God trying to actually get friendship. None of the examples I gave you, including the flood, we're going to talk about and unpack what it was about, was not about God trying to persuade people to trust him. 
or to punish people who were disobedient. None of that was going on in any of these examples. Because you can't get love and trust by telling people, love and trust me or I'll kill you if you don't. You always get rebellion. Thus, the sullen submission, those who believe God runs his universe like Satan says he does, and therefore he has a law and he must punish lawbreakers, and I'm going to obey, inside their hearts and minds, they become rebels. They don't actually become low. They're the kind who crucify Christ and lay him off the Sabbath, off the, the, the cross in order to keep the Sabbath. So continuing on, develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, he would disobey. If he dared, but he doesn't because he won't get in trouble. There'll be a demerit in a book in heaven. One day he'll have to face the judgment and, and he'll have to face the judgment without an intercessor to protect him. I wouldn't dare have my TV on a minute after sunset. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. And, and yes, the bitter murmurings and complaints about the person who, and I saw my neighbor, their TV was still on after, can't believe it, and, and they're the Sabbath school teacher, and my kids are going to be taught by them. Bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. These are the grumblers in the church. You ever had any grumblers in the church? Next quote was uh, out of uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he's required to do so. Required by whom? Well, the law said it. And if you break the law, you get in legal trouble. I mean, you're required by the law. And God, of course, he will enforce his law. We're required to do it. It's a rule. You must keep it. Required to do so. We'll never enter into the joy of obedience. According to this author, never enter. What type of obedience? This person's obeying. But what type of obedience? This is the obedience that comes from law. This is the obedience that comes from rules. This is the obedience that you get in the penal legal model system. It is not the obedience of an understanding friend. This is why God has blessed his faithful people at this time in human history with the message of the three angels, which calls people to worship him who made the heavens the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Worship the creator, the builder of reality, whose laws are design laws, and stop worshiping in Babylon, the system of the Code of Hammurabi, the system of imperial imposed rules and course of threats and punishments. He does not enter the joy of obedience. He does not obey. He does not obey. Wait a second. These are some, the, the, are you telling me the people, the Pharisees in Christ's day didn't obey law? They were some of the best law keepers in human history, weren't they? They were some of the best lawmakers. Lawmakers? Law, rule keepers? They strained gnats out of their food so they wouldn't eat the wrong stuff. I mean, they were, they were vicious about this. Yet they don't obey. When the requirements of God are accounted as a burden because they cut across human inclinations, notice now we're not talking about performance, we're talking about hard attitudes again. This is reality. True obedience is a humble willingness to listen, have a heart that can be instructed. We, we, we long for, I want to be better. Uh, search me and see the wicked way. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. This is what it means to be a truly obedient person, but the rule keeper, obedience of law, it's about rules. True obedience is an outworking of a principle within. It springs from a love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. 
Friendship, friendship. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. It means you understand his character. You understand his design laws. You understand why it's right. The bottom gray section in our lesson uh, says, what lesson can we learn from Noah's story regarding the role of warning the world about coming judgment? For one thing, if we look at, look at it based on that example alone, the warning of judgment doesn't work. The warning of judgment doesn't work. They didn't, they didn't go on the ark. What about Nineveh? It worked in <laughs> temporary. Temporary, but for that, that generation. Yeah. But you're right, for the, for the people in the flood, it didn't work. But for me, what is the common question I've kind of... A law lens. What law lens? When you hear the word judgment, when you hear the word judgment, what law lens? Does judgment make you think like a courtroom like this, a judicial process? Or does judgment make you think of something else, like discernment, like a doctor's diagnosis? When a doctor diagnoses, he judges what is going on, what is wrong. Uh, Like a doctor's treatment plan, he makes a judgment of what is necessary to get you well. Here's my judgment on this matter. You've got this problem because of X. You will get well if you do Y. Is that how you think of it? That's a design law understanding of judgment. The human-imposed law idea of judgment is all about some external authority, uh, finding, uh, determining guilt or innocence, and then inflicting some roles of punishments. Well, think of... Uh, here's, a, here's another historic quote. I've got a few more to share with you. Uh, this one is Testimonies to Ministers, page 75. Uh, how was it with the rebellious inhabitants of the antediluvian world. After rejecting the message of Noah, they plunged into sin with greater abandon than ever before and doubled the enormity of their corrupting practices. What's described in that first sentence? Design law. Design law, exactly right. Did they have a choice? They made a choice. They made a choice to reject the truth. What happens in minds... When truth is rejected, do they become more ennobled, more enlightened, or do they become more darkened, more depraved? Is that an infliction? Does God use power to make minds that reject truth more darkened? No. Then they said, and doubled the enormity of their corrupting practices. What would corrupting practices connote? What kind of, that there's something inherent. The practice itself causes corruption. Sin paying its own wage. Sin pays its wage. The wage is death. It's not describing. Did you hear anything in that sentence that made you think, well, there's a legal problem? They're, they're, they're adding up more demerits in a book that they're going to have to one day be uh, held accountable for. That's not what I heard. I heard reality-based, what's happening in heart and mind. Continuing on with the quote. Those who refuse to reform by accepting Christ find nothing reformative in sin. Their minds are set to carry their spirit of revolt, and they are not and never will be forced to submission. What'd you hear? What's described? What does reform mean? Change. Change. Does that sound like, well, does that sound like 
those who refuse an adjustment of their heavenly registry. Is that what reform means to you? No, reform happens in the person, doesn't it? A change of attitude, change of heart, change of motive, change of method, change of value. Something changes in the person. That's what reform means. Okay? It's not legal adjustment. But notice they will never be forced to submission. What would threats of punishment mean then? If you don't obey, I'm required by law and justice to, to punish you as long as you deserve before I end your life for all eternity. But I would never force you. Try that on your spouse. I love you, sweetie. I really, 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 really would love for you to cook me this meal tomorrow. And you're free not to, but if you don't, I'm going to pour gasoline on you while you're sleeping and light you on fire. (laughs) But it's only because I love you. I love you. (laughs) But but you're free not to. You're free to say no. You have complete freedom in this relationship. Do you see how completely ridiculous traditional Christianity is? It is contrary to how reality works. And we are still teaching this perverse view of God in our schools, in our churches, in our universities. And you wonder why the Lord hasn't come. He's waiting for the three angels' message to truly go forward. Continue on with the quote. The judgment, because we're asking the question about judgment, the judgment which God brought upon the antediluvian world declared it incurable. The judgment. What kind of judgment is this here? Is this a legal judgment? He decided they were quite healthy, good tissue, no necrosis, no gangrene, but he declared it gangrene, even though it was the healthiest tissue ever. He judged it to be that way. Or it was gangrenous because it was gangrenous. And thus it needed to be amputated. Because it was incurable. Because it was incurable. His judgment was diagnostic, not causal. When a judge in a courtroom makes a judgment, their their verdict determines legally the guilt and innocence. That's not how God's kingdom works. His judgment confirms the condition of the heart. And thus in Revelation, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That's God's judgment. How about this one? Prophets, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 587. How great is the long-suffering of God toward the wicked? The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts of his providence. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the path of ungrateful, rebellious men. Every blessing spoke to them of the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, But when they stubbornly persisted in their repentance, he removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word. And thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. What do you hear here? Judgments. What does this mean? Judicial process? Inflicted punishments? 
or therapeutic interventions. When a parent has an unruly child who keeps running out into traffic at age three, despite being told not to play it in the street, despite having uh, their desserts withheld, might a parent eventually pop them on the bottom? And from the child's perspective, the parent spoke to them in grace and warnings and reproofs, but eventually was forced to speak to them in judgments. I judge that the best thing for you now is to experience some pain for your disobedience. Maybe now you'll learn. Great Controversy, page 35. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance. In the utter destruction that befell them as a nation and all the woes that followed them in their dispersion, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Says the prophets, this is Hosea 13. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, for thou hast fallen in thine iniquity. Their sufferings are often represented, notice this, this is what the author says, their, their sufferings are often represented as punishment visited upon them by the direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. The horrible cruelties enacted in the destruction of Jerusalem are a demonstration of Satan's vindictive power over those who yield to his control. But how is it portrayed? God's punishing. God's using his power to torment. There are several more quotes along these lines that I'm going to skip that are in the notes so I can move on because our time is flying by. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. The verb... Asa, which is make, refers to Noah. Noah's action refers to Noah's actions. Also a key word in Genesis, creation account. Noah's acts of obedience to God are like God's acts of creation. What we can take from this link is that the flood is not just about God punishing humanity, but about God saving us as well. Was the flood... Uh, a punishment from God upon human beings for their sin and wickedness. No. According to Scripture, even if you go to Genesis in the beginning and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what, according to Scripture, is the punishment for sin? The wages of sin is sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from the nature reap destruction. So the punishment for sin is death. Which death? The sleep in the grave until you're resurrected death? Or the eternal death? The second death? Jesus said, if you think, well, no, no, this is, this is, this is, well, this is what Jesus said, John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Did Daniel, would Daniel fall in the ones who believed in Jesus? And what, what does the Bible say at the end of the book of Daniel happened to Daniel? Sleep with your fathers. You're going to sleep with your fathers in the dust. That's first death. But Jesus said Daniel's never died. 
Has Daniel received the wages of sin death? No. What about the people who died in the flood then? Which death did they die? Is there a resurrection for that death? Even So notice, first point, those who want to say God's punishing sin conflate two separate deaths. They First death is being experienced, but they substitute eternal death, which is the punishment for sin, and read into it, this is God punishing sin. It's not. You have to look. Nope, this is not. This is a sleep death. Secondly, though, if you're still dealing with people who prefer the, the human law model, the, the punishing God model, the, the judgment and infliction of, of, of the just punishments, which are death, then you ask them the question, does God's punishment for sin come before or after judgment? After judgment. And when is the judgment? Didn't it begin in 1844? So does God's judgment on sin before or after the flood? After the flood. So even in their wrong model, this can't be judgment and punishment for sin because punishment comes after judgment. So it has to be something else. So the purpose of the flood was actually therapeutic. It was God's diagnostic judgment of what was wrong and his therapeutic judgment of what action was necessary in order to save the species human. And there are three major therapeutic reasons for the the flood. The first has to do with the plan of salvation. As soon as Adam sinned, Genesis 3.15, God says that that the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head in order to provide salvation for the species. Without Jesus, could any human being in history have found salvation without Jesus? No, his life, death, resurrection was a requirement for the human species to be saved from sin. That was the promise. And so as soon as God makes the promise, Satan begins his plan to obstruct the plan. He goes on the war path to stop the plan. How could he stop the plan? God would not have a woman like Jezebel be the mother of Jesus. Would he? Would God force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? Would we have some type of cosmic rape going on? I don't want it, Lord. You're getting it. No, that's not what's going to happen. He has to have a righteous woman who loves and trusts him and who's willing, who's a volunteer. So if Satan can get all the human beings on earth to permanently sear their hearts, harden their conscience, warp their character, such that they will close themselves off to God, there's no avenue through which Messiah can come. And you say, well, that's with all the millions and billions of people on the planet, that's unlikely he's going to get them all to close their heart. Well, according to Scripture, at the time of the flood, there was one righteous man left on the earth. Only one. The avenue through, not eight, only one righteous man. Okay? Okay? And, and, and through his family, the avenue of the Messiah is almost shut. And notice how long God waited how his patience was, how gracious he was, how much time he gave them. Only one. And so God finally acts not to punish sin, but to keep open avenue for Messiah so the species could be saved. First therapeutic reason, keep open avenue for Messiah. Second therapeutic reason, to provide every human being alive at the time of the flood an opportunity for repentance. For 120 years, They had heard the preachings of Noah. 
And they'd been listening to CNN experts tell them that he was a crazy man and that science had proven there was no such thing as rain. And they preferred the experts to the word of God. And so they viewed him as a crazy man and they didn't get on the ark. And then, seven days after the doors closed, something begins happening in their world. Rains begin to fall. The fountains of water begin to break loose. Evidence suddenly confirms Noah was right. And it would be frightening and terrifying. And all of those people would have minutes, maybe hours, maybe a day or two. Who knows how long they were running up the hills or whatever before the flood finally took them over. But they had a period of time where they could have repented and said, Lord, I was listening to the pundits. I was listening to the governmental experts. And I listened to the wrong people. I'm wrong, Lord. Will you forgive me? Now, do we have any evidence that that can happen? Well, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross had lived a rebellious life, and I am sure he had many opportunities to know a better way preached to him in his upbringing in his community in Palestine. And he rejected them. But at the cross, he saw a new truth and was convicted. Now, while his temporal life was over, Based on his rebelliousness, he found eternal life. These people were still going to die in the flood. Their temporal life was over. But God, and and I, let me be very clear, I am not suggesting one person repented. I'm not suggesting it. What I'm suggesting is the God that we serve would give every opportunity for every person to repent. Think about the evidence he gave before it started raining. Yeah. Animals marching on to the ark and the door being closed by an unseen hand. The mountain of evidence. Yep. And God would have given another opportunity. And if and can you imagine if, if somebody would have uh, repented during the flood and God said, well, I'm sorry, the door was shut and your probation was closed. I know you really love me now, but I'm sorry you can't come in legally. I can't allow it. We can't imagine that, can we? No. So, again, second therapeutic reason to give every person who died in the flood... One final chance for them to repent if they choose freely. Yeah, I think that was, I think it was a reason. This is why the flood happened the way it did. And then third therapeutic reason for the flood was to put obstacles in the way of future worldwide apostasy, where the avenue was almost completely shut down to one man. God wanted to make it harder for that to happen again. And those factors, think about what the factors that led to the worldwide apostasy so quickly after the fall. What besides the sinfulness in humans, of course, that that had, that was there. But why why did they harden so quickly? Well, what happens to sinful people when everything is given to them? When they don't have to work for anything? What happens over time when people are self indulgent and hedonistic? What happens? Uh, what happens if such people live hundreds of years? What influence would they have on their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-great-grandchildren? And on and on it goes. Okay? Uh, Have you ever heard idle hands are the devil's workshop? So the flood altered the environment to make it harder to survive, meaning you would have to work 
more diligently for your food, you wouldn't have as much time to enter into sinful living. It was a therapeutic intervention to delay the hardening of hearts and the rebelliousness of people and the world uniting. Additionally, the environment was changed from the Eden-like conditions to shorten lifespan so that those who still hardened in wickedness could not affect as many generations with their own personal negative and corrupting influences. Just imagine people like Hitler or Stalin living 900 years. Just imagine that. The corrupting influence that these people could have. And so, again, God shortened the lifespan to no more than 120 years. So putting all this together, we discover that the flood is an uh, is a therapeutic intervention of a loving, merciful, gracious God to act in ways necessary for the circumstances of the sinful species in order to save us and heal us, not punish us. There's no punishment involved here. And it's such a corrupting thing. And, and you think about how gracious God is because he knew. He knew that even though this was a... And it grieved him. I think that... Go back to another, another thing on the grief... It grieved him that the children were suffering this way. It grieved him that he was going to have to take these actions. And it grieved him that after he took these actions, the devil was going to make such capital out of it. And turn it around and say, see, see, look, he'll kill you. He's punishing. He's a punishing God, just like I said. And how that, that lie is still going on and people are not teaching the truth that he was not punishing. He was saving because the circumstance required it. So the flood story is an excellent example of the difference between facts and I teach my patients this all the time. There are facts. Fact. God sent a flood. Everybody but eight died in the flood. These are facts. And then there are interpretations of facts. Well, what do those facts mean? Well, it means that God said you better do something. If you don't do it, he'll use his power to punish you. Those were wicked people. And, and, and lawbreaker. And they were lawbreakers. And if you break the law, you've got to punish people. And God is threatening us. And he'll do the same thing. But in the end, he won't use water. He'll use fire to torment because it's more painful and they deserve more. That's an interpretation. And that goes back to the law lens and the kind of God you believe you serve. Tuesday's lesson focuses on Noah after the flood, releasing the various birds, and uh, talks about, do I want to go to that because we're getting out of time, or I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson. That's just another element of obedience. And I will just say this. What kind of obedience does God want? He, does he want the, uh, you know, God said it, I, I believe it, that settles it. So, so imagine as a parent, you've raised your child to be an obedient and faithful child, and you send them off to a good Christian college, and you're paying for their tuition, and each morning they ring you up on the phone, and they say, Mom or Dad, uh, thank you for blessing me with your love, with your care, with sending me to this wonderful college and paying my tuition. I sure love you. And because I love you, I never want to let you down. So, Mom, tell me what you'd have me do today. Do you want me to go to class or skip class? You tell me, and, I, and I'll do it, because I want to be obedient, and I want to do what you'd have me do. And, and when I go to class, if, I, if you want me to go to class, should I cheat today or not cheat, uh, Mom? And you just tell me, because I, I want to do what you'd have me do. Uh, I don't want to do anything that would disappoint you, so tell me what you'd have me do. And, and uh, there's one person in my class, Mom, who, who really irritates me, and, and they get under my skin. I'm just wondering, should I curse them and make fun of them to humiliate them you, you, or, or not, Mom? You, you, just tell me what to do, because I want to be the kind of obedient child you you'd want me to be. Fails a parent. Would you say, 
I'm so proud of my child. I sure raised them right. Would you be grossly disappointed? Do you know how many Christians function this way? They function exactly like this. God, you tell me what to do. They have no clue why something's right or wrong, unless God tells them what to do. They look for the rules. They look for the scriptures to identify all the things that says we're allowed to do. Uh, well, can we do this? Can we do that? Or we should do this? We make the lists. God wants us to grow up, to have the mind of Christ, to discern, to understand, to comprehend, to be an intelligent, cooperative friend, and do what's right because it's right. Because it's actually right. Wednesday's lesson is about the covenant made. Let's talk about this briefly. The covenant made with Noah. Was the covenant made with Noah, and Wednesday and Thursday is about the covenant. Was the covenant made with Noah a different covenant, a new covenant, something, or is it simply a continuation of the covenant made with Adam in Eden? As we speak of covenants, what do you understand a covenant to be? An agreement? A sacred contract? A relationship? An accord? An understanding? What do you understand a covenant to be? Was there any covenants prior to sin? Prior to sin. What about marriage? Is marriage a covenant relationship? Did God design Adam and Eve to be married together? The two shall become one flesh. Was that a covenant? Yes or no? Yes. As God designed marriage covenant in Eden, was that a legal arrangement? Or was it an intertwining of hearts, minds, and selves to become a greater whole? And this is what marriage actually is as God designed it. Godly marriage brings two sentient beings into a type of oneness that defy, defies human logic. A oneness in which both individuals retain their unique identities, but simultaneously, under the power of love and trust, function as a greater whole. A bonded, integrated unit or team who share the same values and principles and motives and methods. In a godly marriage, each person rejoices in the advancement and success of the other and celebrates every opportunity to invest in the welfare of the other. It is a mutually rewarding circle of beneficence in which love flows freely from heart to heart. In such a loving union, the two individuals expand, ennoble, develop, elevate beyond which either person is able to do as a sole individual isolated by themselves. It is in this unity of love that people flourish and become truly godlike. And their love deepens and strengthens over time. And does the Bible use the relationship of marriage to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his people? Did anybody read my blog this week? The New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ. That's what the blog was. And this relationship is a covenant relationship, and in such relationship as God designed it implement and implements through Christ and his people, this is not a legal arrangement. It's a transformation of hearts and minds, bringing us into one mint or at one mint with God. Now, is this covenant that I just described 
this marriage covenant, this at one this union, the two becoming one, is that different than the covenant promised in Genesis 3.15, the covenant that the Messiah is going to bring? What's the purpose of the Messiah except to bring the estranged people back into what? Oneness with God. That's called atonement or at one And Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they will be one, as you and I are one. Me and you, you and me, them and us. This is the unity. This is the covenant. It is the covenant of love and trust. And that's what God intended for Adam and Eve and all human beings to have in Eden before the fall and what he achieves through the work of Christ for all who love and trust him. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for what you've revealed to us in Christ, what you've achieved for us through Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit will take the victories of Christ, reproduce it in us, purge all the elements that alienate us, that undermine our unity with you, and bring us back into the oneness that you have designed for human beings to have in a love and trust relationship with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.